0: Amen. How are you doing, church? Doing good? You look great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 for the large majority of the sermon. One two verses. One verse out of Matthew, a little bit in Luke, but for the big chunk of the middle, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And before I dive into that part, um, on this day, on September 11th, I would just like to start the service this way. If you were in the military or a first responder, would you please stand to your feet? Right here, in Bay Meadows, Sanctuary, everywhere. <laughs> military or first responder. Please stay up. Stand up and stay up. Come on, Ken hut, get up. All right. Now let me say something, which will be unpopular maybe in some circles, especially right now we're confused about when we're supposed to stand and stuff. Listen, the reason that we will stand up for you to honor our country and you is because when this world tries to knock us down, you stand up and you stand in the gap. You've been anointed and appointed by almighty God so that we could be here to worship Jesus. And I say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, and we honor you in this place. Thank you very much. Amen, amen, and amen. Now, we're we are in the seventh week of an eight-week series called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that Jesus used that we translate now in English into the word church. It really means movement. Back in Matthew, he took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, that's like Sin City, and said, upon this rock, the rock of the public proclamation that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not not prevail against it. And this week I had the incredible privilege to hang out with, to spend some time with, pouring into some... Some church planters that you and I, that we support all over the world. Now, through our Before All Things initiative since November, we've planted 44 churches around the world, and we're training 592 pastors right now. You didn't even think you did much this weekend. You did a lot, okay? It's a big deal. But there's about six or seven that that we're in um, kind of a special partnership with, and legitimately around the world. And these men of God are doing mighty works of God. And so especially in a time where a whole lot of pastors are falling, we wanted to just invest in these men of God. And they really are from all over the world. Um, one guy that couldn't, meet, uh, couldn't make it over in a, in a church that we support is from Italy. And so I just feel like the Lord was stirring in me that Gretchen and I should go visit their church and just be with them and pray with them. And so if you would like to pray about that, I would appreciate those prayers. Uh, there's another guy, another church that we support and partner with uh, in Rio, Brazil. I am going to visit him next year. And then also in Costa Rica. And, and, uh, and then there's one here in town in Springfield, kind of downtown, uh, that, that we support. One in St. John's County, one in the Jersey Shore. And I've, the Lord told me that Pastor Stone should probably go see that one. And then also in Brooklyn, okay? So we brought all these guys together. We're just, uh, you know, praying pray for each other, sharing war stories. And here, here's what it led me to. Not only has it been working on this sermon series, Ecclesia, to talk about the kind of church that we hope the Church of 1122 is, but also kind of sharing some stories about what, what God is doing in our various churches. I just wanted to say thank you to you. And here's what I mean. Um, At the end of a lot of services and at restaurants and grocery stores and all over town, you will come up to me and say a very encouraging thing, and you use all the wrong words, but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You come up to me and you say, you have changed my life. Okay, I can't change anything. Ask my wife. I could barely change the diaper. There's no way I could change your life. But I know what you mean. What you mean, God changed your life while I was the one talking, and so you want to say thank you and you give me the encouragement. And it is encouraging. Don't say that, but it is encouraging. And so I want to use the same wrong words with the same sentiment to say to you, thank you. Because this ecclesia, this movement, you've changed my life. I mean, this thing, you see, if you back this dude up about, about five years ago where a group of us met in Petey's living room and said, what kind of church is God calling us to launch you know, I just started making stuff up that I thought, think, was, was rooted in the scriptures. I mean, one of the great graces upon me and that early team that we had is we got to start with a blank slate, and we knew a bunch of stuff about church we didn't want to do because we'd been to that kind of church, and, and God uses all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of different people, but we'd been to a bunch of churches that just, the predominant word was just no. No, I sometimes thought, God, why did you inspire a whole Bible? You should just inspire one three by five card. Can we do that? Is it fun? No, all right? And we didn't want to do that. We actually did, we, we wanted it to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And now that we're that we're almost four years in, next week we turn four. Now, it's a big four, right? But we're a big old goofy toddler, all right? But that's all right, we're four. <clears throat> As I reflected on it this week and was praying for you and about you this week, I just thought, wow. You know, this thing, I think it really is what we felt like God called us to do about five years ago, four years ago when we planted the Church of 1122. And so I want to say thank you. And not only that, one of my favorite things about this church, one of my absolute favorite things about this church is what we're going to do this week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Sunday also. We're We're doing Saturated. A revival, saturated. You see, I did youth ministry for about 15 years. And when I began to start just trying to disciple adults, I figured out very quickly the problem with adults is they quit going to camp. And what you do is you come in here for like an hour and you feel like, man, if I can just keep the Holy Spirit off of me long enough, it won't stick and I don't have to change the thing about me. And see, that's why we take teenagers to camp and, and just sort of let them turn their back on the world and for five days saturate them in the gospel of Jesus. And that's probably why more people make a decision for Christ before the age of 18 than any other, any other group. And so we just said, we're going to do camp for adults, and we're going to call it revival. And I was telling a friend of mine, he's a pastor in England, he'll actually be here uh, during a part of the revival. And I said, we're doing this revival. And he says to me, how do you know it's going to be a revival? All snarky in English like they are, Okay. <laughs> And I said, the reason why I know it's going to be a revival is because we ask. Because we pray and fast and ask God to move. And I'm the kind of guy that believes God actually likes to save people and revive people. And we've been praying and asking that God would move in a big way. And we know, we believe that when you preach the word of God upon that rock, he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we believe that God's going to move like crazy and saturated. Amen? And so... I need you to be here every night for you, not for me. I'm going to be here either way, okay? On Wednesday night, Pastor Kwan will be here. Pastor Kwan pastors the church uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's like like a part of our family. On Thursday night, we're bringing a Presbyterian here. Now think about that, Presbyterian and revival. You want to talk about God moving. That's crazy talk. And you don't know him, his name's Ray Cortez, but he's gonna blow your hair off. That's where mine went, okay? He's gonna talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ and it's gonna blow you away. On Friday night, my dear brother, Pastor Leonce Crump will be here. He's about six foot five of twisted steel and gospel appeal, that's what he is. Were y'all here last year when he picked up my table? because it was too short for him tonight. Bay Meadows, y'all think I'm six too. Praise God, don't even, that's true, that's true. But but it was hurting his back, leaning over to read, so he just picked the whole thing up to his face. <laughs> I don't even know what he said, and I haven't tried it because I don't want to embarrass myself, but he will be here Friday night. Saturday, we have a worship night with Shane and Shane, a worship team out of, oh, their mom's here, that's cool. Uh, <clears throat> And then Pastor Ryan's going to share a word also, Pastor Stone, and and then on Sunday you got me again. But I need you to be here Wednesday through Sunday of next week as we saturate ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next Sunday I'm going to talk about what it looks like to deepen a relationship with Jesus. And so today we're on the word discover, that we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now here's why I use the word discover. You see, discovery is not like invention. Like when you invent something, you do something to make this thing happen. But when you discover something, you just it just occurs to you that this thing was already there. And this relationship with Jesus is, has already been made available to anybody that would have eyes to see and ears to hear. You see, it's sort of like this. In, in 1928, Alexander Fleming, he was working on an experiment with bacteria And then he decides to go on a vacation, and he's kind of a slob, so he does not clean up his mess, and he leaves a dirty Petri dish in the lab sink. When he gets back from his week vacation, he finds bacteria had grown all over the plate except in an area where mold had formed. And as a result, do you know what he discovered? Penicillin. You see, wives, God can even use a messy kitchen for his own purposes. Can I get a witness from the husbands? Amen. Praise God. All right. Now here's the reality. He didn't invent it, but he just discovered it. He just discovered it. That, that, that discovery was there, but it wasn't until his eyes saw it that it changed the entire world. Some of us are alive today because of this discovery. And so what we want to talk about is what it looks like to discover, to discover a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you, if you jump over to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 what you will see is Jesus shares a parable about what it looks like to discover something that's already been there but made available to you. Matthew 13, an entire sermon in two sentences. Don't get any ideas. Here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. And Jesus says, that's kind of what it's like to discover a relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the question I ask. How many times do you think this brother walked by that field? I mean, was it six days or six weeks or six years? You know, that treasure had been in that field for a long, long time. And then one day, by God's sovereign grace, somehow this guy bumps into it, and he realizes that the treasure in this field is greater than all the treasures that he has in all of his life. And so it changes everything about his whole life. And so he goes home, and he begins to act differently. He goes home, and he starts selling off everything that he has. And as he does that, you've got to know that his friends thought he was crazy. Like, what are you doing, man? Why are you selling your house, and why are you selling your clothes, and why are you selling all this stuff? And he says, because I'm going to buy that field. And the only reason it looked crazy to those people is because they did not know the treasure that was in that field. You see, he is no fool who gives up everything that he can't keep to attain something that cannot be taken away from him. See, the same thing has happened to many, 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 many of you here at our church. Some of you have discovered a relationship with Jesus. You've discovered the treasure in the field. And then when you went home from that, you started doing things differently. You started managing your time differently. And people at work go, what is wrong with you? You're gonna take two weeks of your vacation to go to Uganda? What? Have you been to Uganda? And you say, well, where are you going on your, on, on your vacation? We're, we're going to the Keys. Oh, yeah, I've been there. It's all right. I can't remember if it was there, the Bahamas. I, I just know there was sand and water. Don't, don't all your vacations just kind of run together and you can't remember when you went where, right? But then... But then when you find that treasure, you begin to realize that that treasure is greater than all the treasures you have. You start doing money differently. You start doing relationships differently. You start doing entertainment differently. And then the people that you know and love, they say to you, I think you've lost your mind. And they're Right? You have lost your mind to the things of this world and you have attained the mind of Christ and you begin to realize that this treasure in a relationship with Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything that I thought was valuable here on this earth. But the reality is that treasure has been there for a long, long time. My prayer for many of you today would be that you would discover the treasure of a relationship with Jesus today. And some of you have been around church for a long time. I mean, a long time. All right, You sing the songs, you pray the prayers, you go to a disciple group, you do all the things. And it's like walking around in this field, but you have not discovered the treasure of a relationship with Jesus in it. It's been there for a long time and made available to you. It's kind of like the Wi-Fi in this place. I'm sure in 10 years we're going to find out that Wi-Fi rots our brains. But right now, it's just kind of soaring through us right now. okay, It is available to anybody that would log on. And some of you will and some of you won't, but it is here. The treasure of a relationship with Jesus is here for you to discover. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter two, what I wanna unpack is this treasure that Jesus is talking about. How do you have a relationship with Jesus? It is called, it is called the gospel. Now, gospel means good news. Let me give you a warning here do not leave before I get to the fourth verse, okay? The first three are gonna be very offensive. It's not my fault, I'm like the mailman. I just deliver the mail, I don't write it myself, all right? And here's why, the good news has to be delivered into bad places. That's what makes it good. So if I were to come up to you and say, I've got good news, I have life-saving medicine for you. Do you want it? You would say, I think I'm okay. Unless you had just gotten a terminal diagnosis, then it would be the best news that you've ever heard. So the first three verses are the diagnosis or the problem. And then the good news comes in. It starts out this way. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. It says, and you. You know who that's talking to? It's not a trick question. You. So as you hear the diagnosis, you're going to think about your mother-in-law and your boss, and I wish those sinners, my neighbors, were here to hear that. Okay, they are sinners too, but this is talking to you and me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, wrath like the rest of mankind. Now listen, we got to stop here for a second. Paul wants us to, enno- to know at least three things. Number one, you are a sinner. Now I know that's very, very offensive to you, but that's okay. That's part of my job. My job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> you and I are by nature and nurtures sinners. We are sinners and, <clears throat> and we are born sinners. Now, here, here's the thing. I know there's some people who are like, who are you to call me a sinner? The greatest one in the room? That's why I can recognize you so easily because I am too. That we, are, we have all sinned and for, fallen short of the glory of God. And, and again, you'll probably be like, listen, I'm not a sinner. I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm not a sinner. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, to which I would say, compared to who? Compared to the nightly news? Yeah, you're a pretty good guy. Com- compared to your roommate? Yeah, you're a pretty good guy. Compared to an almighty, holy, and just God? Pretty good's not enough. I mean, what if we compare you and me to just basic, basic ethics, ethics 101. We call them the Ten Commandments. Now, we studied the Ten Commandments a couple of years ago, so you all know them. We know they're not just hanging on a courthouse in Alabama. They're actually in the Bible, all right? Exodus chapter 20, let us know what the law of God is, what his perfect requirement of us is. And there's, a, there's 600 more, but we'll focus just on the basic ones, the top 10, okay? The first one is this, is there's only one God, Have you ever treated anything else, or or a lot of times what we do is we treat ourselves like we are God, that everything is supposed to revolve around our own world. Or how about the second one? It says, you should have no other idols before me. Have you ever treated a person or a thing you've ascribed to them worth that only goes to the one true God? Have you ever treated something temporary like it was eternal? And we know this is true. You can't find your phone for six hours and you're like, I am going to die. That's an idol in your life. The third one is, don't use the Lord's name in vain. If you've ever been to Walmart on Christmas Eve, then you've done that. (laughs) The fourth one, obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. Who even does that? I mean, right? The only only two organizations I know that do it are Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, to which I say, praise God for some Hobby Lobby obeying the Sabbath, because if they didn't obey the Sabbath, we wouldn't have parking for us here at San Pablo On Sundays, so, you know, God bless your obedience to our neighbors. But the Chick-fil-A one bums me out a little bit. Can we just be honest? Have you ever been Jesus-juked by Chick-fil-A a a little? Like you're driving home on a Sunday, and you're like, no line. And you pull in, and you're like, oh, you're Sabbath Christians. Ah." It's just true. The fifth one, obey your father and mother. If you've ever been 2, 12, 18, any of the ages in between, you know that one's out. The sixth one's when we start to feel good about ourselves. Thou shalt not murder. And you think, ha, 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 pastor. I have never killed anyone. Okay, I, I, I hear your uh, self-righteousness and I raise you a Jesus sermon. Jesus comes along and the sermon on the mountain says, so you've heard, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, if you've ever hated your brother in your heart, then you've already murdered him. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been on JTB at five o'clock in the afternoon, then you're a murderer. You know how I know? you know the translation in Hebrew of the sound of your horn? Murder! That's what it says. Murder, murder, murder! That's what that is. <laughs> Seventh one, thou shalt not commit adultery. And again, you might rise up like, ha ha, I've always been faithful to my wife. And then Jesus, in the same sermon, pulls the rug out from under us on that one too and says to us, if you've, if you've ever lusted after a woman, to which the guys are like, okay, move on to the next one. But girls, it's you too. If a grown woman's ever gone to a vampire movie, then you're out too, all right? <laughs> The eighth one is, thou shalt not steal. To you is like, I don't steal. I just take things that aren't mine. That's like saying, I'm not wet. I just have water all over me. Yeah, you're a thief. The ninth one is, thou shalt not lie. And if you, if you say that you're not a liar, then guess what? That makes you the biggest liar in the room. The 10th one, thou shalt not covet. Have you ever wanted something that God decided to give to somebody else and not you? Yes. Ladies, that's called HGTV. That's what it is. That's what it is. You're like, but how can it be these two Christians from Texas are the ones doing it all? It's, it's about coveting. I thought I was okay with what gave, God gave me until I saw that. And listen, it ain't just ladies. I got to just make a confession. On that bumper video, I think I was coveting Chad's beard. Did you see that brother's beard? It had some serious beard in me. I was like, wow, what a beard, all right? So, I don't know how you're doing. On my list, I'm right about 0 for 10. 0 for 10. And if you're like, not me, then you're a liar. Go back to number nine, all right? You see, we're sinners. Okay, now, I'll even give you this. Even if you take God's law out of it, what if you just compare you to you? What if you just compare you to your own commandments? Have you ever broken a promise to you? Have you ever let you down? Have you ever done a thing that is so outside of what you think your character is? You're like, I don't know what I was thinking. You see, the problem is, is, you. The heart of the problem is that we have a heart problem. That's what it is. That's why you've said things that you've been embarrassed of and you say things like, oh, that just slipped out. The only thing that can slip out is what's in there. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means this. You don't have a potty mouth. You have a potty heart and that's a problem. That's what Paul means when he says that we are sinners. We are Sinners. The second thing that he wants us to know is this, is that you are dead. You see, this means that when we sin, we are not just in the doghouse with God, we are in the morgue. We are dead. So the message of the gospel is not gonna be about bad people quit doing so much bad stuff and try to be better. The message of the gospel is not, God is good, you are bad, try harder. The message of the gospel is going to be, you were dead in your trespasses, but in Christ, he made us alive. Do you know what a dead person can do? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Which by the way, this is why there is no room for arrogance in the church. I don't know why the living, breathing followers of Jesus come up to a dead world and say, how dare you smell like a dead world? So Paul wants us to know we're sinners and we are dead And then the third part, at least the third part, this is gonna be the most offensive part, but whatever, that we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Apart from Christ, that's who we are, sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Now listen, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ right now, you, you probably are offended. You'd be like, how dare you insult this? I was taught that I am a snowflake. I am a rainbow, I'm a skittle, I am puppy's breath, I am unmet met potential, that's just what I am. You know who told you that? Another son of disobedience, child of wrath. That's who told you that. We are by nature and nurture sinners. We are, no one has to teach us to sin. Every parent of a toddler, can I get an amen? It's just true. We, we, I mean, is there a more selfish group of people than little children? Now, I'm not saying they're not cute. They're adorable, and we love them like crazy. And they are selfish, little wretched, black-hearted sinners and liars. Everyone, every child born is born like a seagull from Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Can I get a witness, mamas? Some of the mamas are like, this is the greatest church I've ever been through in my whole life. This is great. You see... <clears throat> Which means this, I know this is offensive, but this is what this means. This means that, yes and amen, every single human being is created in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God, but we are not all children of God. I know what you mean, people mean when they say we're all children of God. What they really mean is we are all image bearers of God. But to be a child of God requires an adoption. We start out children of wrath we start out sons of disobedience. So you can, look at, you can go home and look at your child today and you son of disobedience because that is by nature and nurture what they are. And here's the thing. I know some people are like, well, why didn't God just forgive? I mean, I get it. If we're all sinners, whether it's against his law or even our own conscience, why didn't God just say, hey, don't worry about it, I forgive you. I forgive people all the time. Why can't God just, you know, and I don't have to die for you. Why can't I just say, don't worry about it, I forgive you because God is holy and just and his holiness is a bigger deal than any of us can understand. And if he were to just say, ah, don't worry about it. You see, our understanding of his holiness is so that we don't think that we're pretty good and God's not that great and we'll just meet him in the middle. God is infinitely holy other than perfect and sinless. And because he is a just judge, by his character and nature, every sin must be judged. And when we slap the face of an almighty, everlasting God, it requires an everlasting punishment. And we want a just judge. I mean, if we we shrink it down to our own world, imagine today, if while you were at church, somebody broke into your house, they stole all your stuff, they took all your furniture, they, they burned on your home, they took your credit cards, ran them all the way up, stole all of your money, your cars, everything you had, and then that person was caught. And then, in a few months, you met them in court, and there you are, standing before the judge, and all the evidence is against this person. They actually sinned against you in that way, and that judge went, you know what? I'm feeling kind of nice today, don't worry about it. What would you say as the one who had been sinned against? She would say, objection, <laughs> you are an unjust judge, right? Because judge, you don't get to pardon them because they didn't sin against you, they sinned against me. What are you gonna do about the debt that they owe me, my house, my cars, my stuff, my money? What are you gonna do about that? And see, the reality is we would be highly offended if that happened, and yet every single sin that's ever been committed has been committed against, as high treason against the high king. God himself. And that's the diagnosis. That's kind of the the bad news. The bad news is you can do nothing to save yourself. The good news is you don't have to. Because then we get to verse four, and here's where the gospel, here's where the light shines in the dark place. Here's where the good news intercepts the bad news. Here's where where the cure comes for the diagnosis. Verse four, two of my favorite words in the whole Bible. But God. You see, I think when you read verses one, two, and three, you're supposed to get to this point where you feel like I am utterly helpless. And yet when four one gets here, but God, you're supposed to feel, uh, but I am not hopeless. You see, because he is before all things. He is greater than your sin. He is greater than your circumstances. No matter how bad or dead you think you can be, that God is bigger and better and his cross overshadows whatever sin that we have ever committed see, but God. This means we deserve the wrath of God and we can receive the love of God. There's an old preacher story that goes around and says this little boy was trying to join the church. So he sits before the deacons and they say to the deacon, so tell me, how did you come to know Christ? And he says, the little boy says, well, I did my part and he did his part. And they're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean you did your part and he did his part? And the boy said, yep, I did my part and he did his part. What are you talking about? He said, I did the sinning and he did the saving. Praise God, that's what that means. But God, but God, being rich in mercy. Do you want know what rich mean? Rich means having more than you need. That's all rich means. So so God doesn't have to dole out his mercy in small increments hoping that he won't run out one day, but he has more than enough mercy for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, he is before all things. He is first, he is love, and he went first. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Here's what this means, that sin is such a big deal that somebody had to die to pay the debt for it. And God loved you so much that he was willing to be the someone to do it. That's the message of the gospel. And then you see in the English translation, uh, there's there's a little dash there, by grace you have been saved. Because the moment the human being, the human mind sees this verse, we begin to go, yeah, but that's not fair. What do you mean? God pays my debt, that's not fair. Listen, fair is not a biblical value. We don't want fair. We want grace. And so he says, it is by grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't save you because of you. Jesus saved you because of him. He didn't save you because you're awesome, but because he is awesome. And the reason I tell you this is not to beat you up, but to free you up. The, the, the performance trap is over, the pretending trap is over. It is by grace that you have been saved. And notice all the verbs in those past two sentences, they're all in the past tense. So when Jesus on the cross says it is finished, he doesn't say it's gonna be finished. He says it is finished. The moment you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, game over, he won, it is finished. I'm reminded of this for sure during football season. Tell you what I did yesterday. At twelve o'clock yesterday, in my life, were two very important kickoffs. One, the mighty mighty Georgia Bulldogs, and two, the Panavida Tiger Sharks, on which my son plays. Which means I'm going to my boy's ball game, right? And so I'm at that game. And by the by, the the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. One of those good and perfect gifts, DVR. All right. And so, as I've told you before, I record all the Georgia games, and then while I'm, I'm coaching his team, I'm watching on my phone what the score is, all right? And so the good news is, here's what I do, is I re-watch all the wins, and if they lose, just like God, I cast it as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> I remember it no more, no problem. <clears throat> well, good news, we win. Not by much, but we won. So I get home, JP, my, my kids have not seen the game yet, we sit on the couch, and we are, we are watching the game. Starts out great, right? And we score a touchdown, and then it ain't going so great. And by the third quarter, we are down 14 to 13, and my children are like, oh no, daddy. And I'm like, children, listen, I know, I know, I know that we are playing an epic dynasty powerhouse of a team called Nickel State. <laughs> I never heard of it either, but it must be amazing. Pretty sure. But fear not, kids, fear not, because we have God on our side in the person and work of Nick Chubb, we will be okay. So don't fret, don't fear, we're gonna win. Now, I would encourage you, if your team wins, you should do the same thing. In fact, you should all record the Jags game today so when we beat the dogs snot out of the cheeseheads, then we can watch it and relive the memories over and over and over again, amen? It is a very biblical thing to do. So why do I say that? Here's why, because that's what, it's, it's kind of like what Paul is talking about here. The moment you surrendered your life to Christ, in eternity, the game is over, you're on the winning team, we're gonna win. From our perspective, we're just rolling out and playing out the rest of the DVR. But I'm telling you, I've read to the end of the book, if you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror. You have been adopted by God. You are a co-heir with Jesus. All he has is yours. Amen. Now, right at this point, I think the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to to write verse eight because there's still something in us that has a really, really hard time trying to receive grace. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, there's a lot of people that think that if I obey, then I'll be accepted. That That is the opposite of the gospel. The, that's called self-righteousness, self-righteousness, or works-based righteousness, that we're trying to earn our right standing with God. <clears throat> the Bible has two primary illustrations to talk about this kind of works-based righteousness. One is in the Old Testament, one is new, in the New Testament. And listen, I'm, I'm going to warn you, they are both highly offensive. Like when I am talk about them, you're even going to be like, why is he talking about this? Because I'm just reading what the Word says. Here's what, here's what Isaiah 64 says about when we try to present our righteous deeds before God to impress him with how good we are. Isaiah 64 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, the reason the ESV or the English translations translate that polluted garment is they know it's gotta be read in church and most churches won't talk about this, all right? Here's what the word polluted garment means. It means used menstrual cloth. Blech. Can I just give you that? Husbands, are you with me here? Of all the grossest thing and the grossest gross, that's it. That wins the top prize. And so, wives, think about this. If you said, i hey, hey, baby, I got you something for Father's Day, and you brought this as a gift, he would be like, Oh my gosh, what did you get me? And it was a filthy rag, he'd be like, What in what is wrong with you, woman? Wouldn't he? He wouldn't be offended by that. And when we try to earn our salvation by our own works, it is that offensive to God. Because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith and not by works. You can't can't impress him with our obedience. The New Testament version, which is my favorite, Philippians 3, 8. Paul, in Philippians 3, he gives a laundry list of all the accomplishments that he has in his life. At the beginning of three, he says this. He says, if anyone has room to boast, I do. Because I was born in the right family. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As for the law, I was zealous. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In our world, that would mean, like, I never miss church. I come, come on Thursday, Sunday morning, 522. I'm going to be at every night of Saturated. I didn't cheat on my Daniel Fast once, and I'm the only person at the whole church that didn't cheat on it. And, and I, I do my quiet times. I do the read through the Bible every year. I go on every mission trip. I sponsor more kids than you do. I, I'm in a disciple group. I launch a disciple group. I lead a disciple group, and I'm a disciple group coach. I do all of those things. He gives his laundry list, and then he says this, and indeed, I count everything, all those good things, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish in Greek is scubilon. The literal translation of scubilon is slang for animal dung. Now, people in Jacksonville don't call that rubbish. My man from England, my buddy does, he steps in, oh no, I've stepped in rubbish. But what do we call it? It's first word's bull, second word, I ain't saying it, scubillon. that's what it is. Bull scubilon. that's what that is. And BS is a legit translation for workspace righteousness. When we come to God and say, God, look how good I am, therefore you must, you must accept me because of my obedience, he goes, that's BS, that's bull scubillon. And then you know what religious people do? Religi- religious people, they just compare their scubillon. Well, look at mine. It stacks up much higher than yours. Yes, but mine is a mocha color, which is much prettier than yours. It's all on. It is by, I'm just reading the word, people. We used to do Bible study. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You see, a lot of us think, if I obey, then I'll be accepted. But the gospel teaches because Christ obeyed, I am accepted, and because I am accepted, therefore I will obey. The reason not to sin is because sin leads to death, and Jesus brought you from death to life, so quit acting like a dead person. Sin always leads to death and bondage. So the reason to not sin is, it's not about keeping you from something. What it keeps you from is the life that Christ freed you to live. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for we are his workmanship. That, that literally means masterpiece or one of a kind. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So should you do good works? Yes and amen as a result of the work that Jesus did for you on the cross. This doesn't mean that saved people get lazy and don't do anything. Absolutely, we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, not for his acceptance, but from his acceptance. Not for his love, but out of his love. That God's love would pour over us, lavish upon us so much that it would overflow into good works all over the world. Not so that people would look at us and not so that we would impress God, so that people would see our Father in heaven and say, you know what, there is something to this. I had the incredible opportunity a few years ago to have dinner with a man that just personified this reality of what it means to know that you're saved by grace and not by works. And the reason is because this brother's got more works than all of us put together. You see, about six years ago, five or six years ago, uh, I was on a mission trip and I get a phone call from, from somebody from our church. This was when we were back at Beach as a service at 1122 at Beach United Methodist Church. And I get a phone call, and the the guy on the phone says, hey, would you and your wife like to have dinner with Billy Graham? And I was like, let me pray about that for a second. "Uh Uh-huh, yes, I do. Now, if you don't know who Billy Graham is, Google him now. Dr. Billy Graham has preached over 2.2 billion people through radio, television. He's preached to over 215 million people live, and he's led millions millions of people to Jesus. He's led more individual people to Jesus than any other individual in the history of the world. Do you understand this? And on top of that, his entire life has been marked by living a life above reproach. When every decade there's scandal upon scandal in the who's who of Christianity, Dr. Graham is a shining light of what it looks like to live above reproach. And so I get to have dinner with him. And sometimes you get to have dinner with people and um, it's almost like this room, right? You'd be like, hey, you wanna eat with the president? I'd be like, yeah. And then you show up and he's eating up on a stage and all these people are having dinner in this big room. That's not how it was. There were six of us, I think, at the table, maybe seven. It was Dr. Billy Graham, this guy that travels with him, the family that was hosting him, and me and my wife, Gretchen. And I don't know who it is that you would like to meet, but this is him in my life. You understand? He's the biggest deal in people that you know do what I do. And so... <clears throat> We walk in, and, and we meet him, you know, and, and it's kind of like, a, like, oh, my goodness. This is, this is like the man. By the way, just some fun fact, he was ordained in Palatka. That's a miracle, all right? So he <laughs> was. So we walk in to have dinner with him, and he looks at me, and he says, so, pastor, tell me about your church. And I look over at Gretz, I'm like, he called me pastor. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he couldn't remember my name, but the whole night he called me Pastor. He said, so, Pastor, tell me about your church. Now, this was a few years ago, and, I, and I, we just come off of a beach baptism weekend, and I think we baptized like 150 people, which is a big deal for us, right? But Billy, and I'm like, well, uh, Dr. Graham, you know, we, God's hand is upon us. It's amazing what he's doing, and we just baptized about 150 people. And he, he was sitting in his chair, and he actually, he was like, I've never heard of such a thing. I was like, wait a minute. In 1975 in Seoul, Korea, you had 75,000 people surrender to Jesus on one night. Don't tell me you ain't never heard such a thing. You've heard it. You sneeze and 150 people get saved, all right? Somebody never heard such a thing. But I'm telling you, he was so encouraging. He was so encouraging. At one point, we said, Dr. Graham, would would you pray for our ministry? And he held my hand. He held Gretchen's hand. He never mentioned the ministry. One time, he only prayed for our marriage. And at the end, he said, amen. He looked at me and said, you take care of your wife, Jesus will take care of his church. That's good stuff right there. That's why he's Billy Graham, all right? Amen. Then at one point, he says, "Uh, so, Pastor, I I understand that your wife is a worship leader. I'm like, yes, sir, she is. Do, do Do you think you would mind singing me a song? I'm like, you better get over there and sing, woman. You understand? You better make it good, too. When Billy says sing, you sing. Come on. She gets up from the table, comes over. He doesn't see well. He can't hear super great. And So she gets like right up in his ear, kneels down. She starts singing, closes his eyes, lifts up a hand. And my wife is leading Billy Graham in worship at this table. Come on. And then when she gets finished, he goes, well, I believe that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, baby, you good, but this brother's been around some people. You understand? His whole life, everybody just encouraging and then at the end I was like Dr. Graham if you could preach one more crusade if you could preach one more sermon what would you preach and he was like oh son that's easy I would preach Galatians 614 and I went mmm see when white people at church don't understand what the guy's talking about you moo like a cow so you sound spiritual (laughs) I didn't know what Galatians 614 is So thank goodness he couldn't see that good. I get my phone, get out my Bible out. I'm like, Galatians 6.14, what is that about, all right? (laughs) He kind of can't see me and slide that thing back over. Here's it. Here's what he would preach. He had one more sermon. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, if any living person can boast in their good works, it would be Dr. Billy Graham. And his, like, final verse of his life is this, but far be it for me to boast except not in what I have done, but what Christ has done for me on this cross because I have been crucified to this world and this world to me. You know what he understood? The man that preached the gospel to more people than any other human who's ever lived, he knows what he's preaching about that he has been saved by grace through faith and not of works, and he's got nothing to brag about. Now, you may hear that and be like, okay, that makes sense theologically, but what's the application to my life? How does that apply to me? What does it look like to discover a relationship with Jesus Christ? We'll end on this. Go to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. I believe God put this in the Bible so that people like you and me could see a real life picture of what it looks like to discover a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, not of good works. In in Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been, he's been tried, he's been convicted, and he is on his way to be crucified. We'll pick it up in verse 32. And it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. Verse 33, and when they came to that place that is called the skull, there They crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews, 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and us. In other words, if you are who you say you are, then how could this be happening to me? If you are who you say you are, then fix me. Fix my problem. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? The other criminal realizes, he realizes, I, This is fair. I've spent a life in crime, and what I am receiving is fair. He admits that he's a sinner. But he sees something different about Jesus. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong, verse 42. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, in this moment, he surrenders his life to the lordship of Christ. One of the things that he does not ask for, though, he does not care if Jesus fixes his current situation. Because I think the thief on the cross is a whole whole lot like the man that finds the treasure in the field. And he realizes that a relationship with Jesus is greater than any kind of temporary prayer request that he might have. That in eternity with Jesus, that treasure is so much more valuable than any temporary thing of value he may have in his own life. And in this moment, he surrenders his life to Christ. By the way, both of the thieves had the exact same information. They were in the exact same circumstances. And one of them, by God's sovereign grace, could discover the treasure, and another God just couldn't see it. And so here's what Jesus says to him. He says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So if anybody in the whole Bible makes it to heaven, we are assured that that brother goes to heaven. Jesus assures him that today... When you breathe your last here on earth, the next breath you take is gonna be in the presence of paradise with me and my Father in heaven. And this is how we know that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works because what could the guy on the cross promise to do? I mean, he doesn't make any, there's no deal making on the cross. He he's not hanging on the cross. and be like, all right, Jesus, from now on for the rest of my life, I'll go to church. Like, Brother, you ain't going nowhere. The rest of your life is like three hours and church ain't again till Sunday. So you're stuck right here. He can't get baptized, he can't take communion, he can't serve anybody, he can't confess his sins to a priest, he can't do anything except the only thing that matters, be saved by grace through faith. He surrenders his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why this is a movement for all people, all people, to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. So my question to you is this, have you discovered a relationship with Jesus? Maybe you've been trying to impress Jesus with how good you are, it is not impressive. You need a savior, not a life coach. Or maybe, maybe you thought you were too far gone. You would look at this criminal and think, well, he's got to be too far gone. There's nothing that he can do to turn his life around. That's right. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. The good news is that Jesus has already done it all. And so today, I want to give you the same invitation that Jesus gave this criminal. That maybe today by grace you would discover, you would see the treasure in the field which is a relationship with Jesus and you would be willing to lay down everything else in your life and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and for every single person that does this, no matter how good you are or how bad you are, for every single person you'll be adopted into the family of God. You go from being a son of disobedience, a child of wrath to being an, a son or a daughter of the Most High King, adopted into His family, sins washed away, and spend forever and ever and ever in paradise with your Father and your Creator. For anybody, anybody who would believe would receive the right to be called a child of God. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? And let me ask you this question. Have you discovered a relationship with Jesus Christ? And maybe today, for the very first time, even though you've been walking through church services for a long time today for the first time you see the treasure in the field you see the relationship with jesus and today you are ready to admit you're a sinner to believe that when christ died on the cross it counted for you and in this moment you want to confess him as lord if that's you would just raise your hand where you are and say jesus remember me this day and i promise you by the power of the holy spirit the authority of the word of god the love of a heavenly father and the blood of jesus that you will be with your father When you breathe your last here, you'll breathe your next breath in paradise with him. Our good and gracious heavenly father, God, we thank you and we praise you that even in this moment, there is salvation in this place. And God, we love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you that you are before all things, that you are first, that you go first, that you love first. And God, may we respond by discovering, discovering that relationship with you. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus. Amen and would you please stand as we respond folks we respond to the gospel we respond by bringing our first and best our tithes and offerings we do it every week to bring back to God what is already his because he is first he loved first he went first and so we bring our first and best because he loved us first by giving us his best in Jesus and we also respond by praying we come and we kneel down at this altar and we cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us then thirdly, we respond by joining our voices together. This is very, very important. You see, God wants us to sing to him. He just says so in the Bible. And when he says do something, we should do it. But here's a part of the reason we do, because it's like a prayer. It's like our entire ecclesia, our entire church praying one thing all together. And we're going to pray about the salvation that he offers to us. So let us respond.